Hello, this is Robert Rickover at Body Learning, and today my guest is Ellen Stafford, who's an Alexander Technique teacher who lives in and works in the Greenfield area of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She, uh, in addition to being an Alexander Technique teacher, she is a dancer and choreographer. She's worked with a number of dance companies and um, a couple of years ago, she founded uh, Geeks Dance, a modern dance company devoted to the creation and performance of geeky dance works. And uh, Ellen also has a special interest in the developmental movement work of Australian anthropologist Raymond Dart and uh, something that's sometimes referred to as the DART procedures, and she includes that in her teaching. And we're going to talk today about how she works with dancers, incorporating, uh, well, I think not just dancers, but but students in general, how she incorporates um, the DART procedures into that work. Uh, Ellen, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you for having me. So could you uh, begin by giving our listeners a very short description or definition of the Alexander Technique? Sure. Um, The Alexander Technique is a skill that you learn. It's sort of like learning a new language. Um, And what it is is a system of postural physical re-education. It focuses on making the student aware of their habits and then giving them the tools to change those habits for the better. Okay, and maybe a short definition or description of the DART procedures. Sure. The uh, The DART procedures are they're a system of developmental movement, and they deal with the way that we as children sort of innately learn patterns of movement. So starting right at the beginning with learning to roll over, uh, learning to look up, and then eventually learning to come to hands and knees, stand and walk. Um, And so the procedures are just movements that are, are sort of designed to mimic the ones that are done quite innately as children. Okay. And you use both, um, both of these methods and kind of in a combined way when you work with students and specifically dancers, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. maybe if you could say a little uh, to to dancers who are listening to this, that's going to be the focus of this podcast. Mm-hmm. What, what, well, I guess, I guess the first question might be if a dancer comes to you for a lesson, an Alexander lesson, how mm-hmm. would you how would you work with them? What what might they expect when they come into your your teaching uh, studio? Well, um, I mean, when you come for a lesson, it no matter what your background is, most of the lesson is roughly the same. We're going to work with uh, daily movements: sitting down, standing up, walking, lying down playing around with different ways of completing those movements, trying to find the ways that are the most efficient, that are the easiest for your body to perform with the least amount of extra tension or stuff thrown on top. Um, And working with dancers is particularly important to, to use this work because, you know, as dancers, we have to do pretty much any movements that a choreographer or a teacher can dream up. 
So a lot of times when I work with dancers, we'll sort of, at the end of a lesson, we'll kind of workshop a specific movement that you might be having trouble with. Um, I work a lot with ballroom dancers as well as ballet dancers and modern dancers. Um, and so we might pull out a specific piece of vocabulary and say, okay, what's the, what's the most efficient way to get this done? Um, or we might just sort of talk about general approach to dance and, you know, the, the way that you are relating to the task of completing movements. Would you say that for, a, if you had a ballet dancer as a student, that going on point, I believe that's the term, right? Mm-hmm. That, that that poses some very special challenges? It certainly does. I mean, I think um, ballet, I think ballet teachers and ballet students have just sort of almost unconsciously over the years figured out what needs to happen in order to make that workable. Mm -hmm. Um, But we definitely do. I mean, I grew up, I went to Pittsburgh Ballet Theater School when I was little, and I did point work, and I've been through all of that. Um, And, you know, a lot of the sort of traditional um, corrections that ballet teachers give are not necessarily the best way to articulate what they're actually going for. I think the the thing that I have noticed overall with with dance and with dance correction is that generally every teacher is trying to get the same thing, um, but they might phrase it differently because they're going to be articulating it based on whatever their their personal background is. Someone who is also a Pilates teacher might start using Pilates terminology. Someone who does Feldenkrais movement might incorporate some of that terminology. And really, we're all going for the same thing. So it depends on what terminology works for you. Mm-hmm. And and what would you say is this, the particular benefit of the an Alexander approach as opposed to some of the others you mentioned? Well, what I think is great, and again, it really depends on what works for the individual dancer, but what I sort of latched onto um, was the simplicity. And the idea that so often in dance classes we get correction upon correction upon correction and you'll end up having 12 different things to think about for one class. And it, it becomes difficult to try and maintain all of that at the same time. What an Alexander mindset sort of gets you into is the idea of what is the one thing I can be thinking about or what are the, the two or three very simple directions that I can be giving myself that will take care of everything. Um, and it kind of goes back to that idea of primary control in the Alexander sense and the idea that, you know, you don't have to think about where your pinky is and where your big toe is and where your eyelashes are, as one of my dance teachers used to say. Uh, you can just think about where your primary control is and that will take care of everything else. And, so, and could you maybe just explain what you mean by primary control for us? Sure. Listeners? So the thing I always like to stress about primary control is that it's not a position. It's a relationship. Uh, the primary control is the relationship between the head, the neck, and the torso. Um, you can kind of think about it as the, the way that the spine is moving, the relationship of the parts of the spine. Um, but the important thing that I stress with dancers especially is that, you know, life is, is a process of movement. If we can only maintain our good use when we're stock still, it's not useful. So primary control is a sense of coordination of the head, neck, and back. And 
getting those parts to move in concert and getting them to to sort of balance each other out will basically take care of all of your other problems. Right. I mean, I, I the way I tend to look at it is if you're going to intervene to change your your posture or movement patterns, you probably would do well to, to give some thought to where and how you're going to intervene because you don't have a lot of, as it were, spare memory slots available to, exactly. to devote to that. And, um, of course, the head-neck, upper-torso relationship mm-hmm. turns out to be a really good place to intervene. Yes. Yeah. If, uh, I don't think Alexander thought of it in quite that sort of neuroscience way, but, mm-hmm. but he, he certainly un- he coined the phrase prim- primary control. Right, right. So, um, and in 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 a in a uh, individual lesson with a dancer, would you bring in some of the dart work, the developmental movement work? I probably would. I generally bring it in, no matter who I'm teaching. But for dancers, especially, I think the way that I take dart work for dancers is the idea of kind of building blocks of movement. You know, I mentioned that the dart procedures pull out these sorts of movements that are innately learned as babies. And because of that, they tend to be the most efficient way to complete any given movement. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, we, we look at curves and we look at spirals. So really quickly, um, there, there are two different kinds of curves in developmental movement. There's primary curves and secondary curves. Um, and they're called that because primary curves are the first shape. They're basically... Uh, flexion of the spine curling over um, into what a lot of people would call, you know, child's pose or kowtow or something like that. Basically, it's the position that you are in inside the womb when you're all curled up in on yourself. Um, And so that curvature of the spine is known as a primary curve because it's the first thing that we do. Mm -hmm. Then kind of the first big milestone for for a baby is being able to support their own head, right? When a baby is first born, you have to hold their head. Mm-hmm. So being able to support their head is engaging the muscles at the back of the neck. That's what allows them to do that. And that is the beginning of what we call secondary curve, which is basically an arch. It's a extension, hyperextension of the spine. And so that arch up, when the baby is looking up and is able to hold their head upright, is the second basic movement. So we call it secondary curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with, with the curves, I talk a lot with dance students about, you know, breaking down whatever big complicated movement they're doing and finding those curves. Are you more in primary right now or are you more in secondary? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times, particularly with something like ballet, for example, um, a lot of times movements can be made much easier by the realization that you should really be in primary, but you're kind of in secondary. Um, And so figuring out, or vice versa, and kind of figuring out, okay, really I need to be in the other curve right now. And And with something like ballet, sorry, with something like ballet, it's very subtle because ballet is all about being quote-unquote upright. Um, So we talk about just sort of tending towards primary or tending towards secondary, and it's more about, you know, the direction 
in the Alexander sense, as opposed to actually going into those curves. So it, it's the idea that you want to be able to switch back and forth between those. Exactly. With, but in, as you say, in the, certainly for ballet dancers, it's not going to be a huge change or it's right. mo- almost more just a mental intent. Exactly. Which will, of course, result in a a physical change, but it'll be fairly subtle. Is that exactly? And particularly, and I feel like again, like I said, you see the the same sorts of goals in pretty much every dance teacher, but a lot of times they just don't have the vocabulary to articulate some of this stuff. So, for example, I always used to get in certain arm positions in ballet, I always used to get teachers who would tell you to picture holding a giant beach ball in front of you. You know, and then you, you can't mm-hmm. get your arms around it. You're trying to get your arms around it. What that is doing to your spine, that sort of image, is tending your spine into primary. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially the same idea, but we're kind of treating it from a different lens and saying, okay, well, you're not really going into a primary curve, but you're you're directing that way, which is why I think it works really well with the Alexander ideas, because that idea of giving a direction as though you were going to do a movement without actually doing it is already sort of worked into the technique. And would there be an an equivalent um, dance instruction for going into secondary curve, something like lift your chest or arch Mm -hmm. your your lower back? A lot of, I mean, it's different for every teacher, but a lot of times you do get that sort of sternum up to the ceiling, um, high arch, a lot of a lot of I feel like with secondary curve a lot of teachers don't really articulate how they want you to do it which to me is not a great idea because secondary curve is is almost more dangerous on your body than primary it can get if you're not doing it correctly it can get very um, uncomfortable and it can put stress and strain particularly on the back of the neck on the lower back um, various there's a lot of kink points going backwards that there aren't when you're going forwards so so is part of what you might be helping a dancer with is in a sense reinterpreting the directions they're getting from their dance teacher Definitely. There's yeah. definitely some of that. I think a lot of that, at least for me in my experience, was subconscious. You know, we talk in Alexander a lot about that balance between the conscious and the subconscious. And for me, a lot of it was sort of realizing that I think better in terms of Alexander directions, um, but that my teacher, you know, is a Feldenkrais person, so she talks more about Feldenkrais ideas. Um, you know, and just kind of consciously coming to that realization was part of the process for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of it, you know, it's just about kind of finding how many different ways we can articulate this idea and then finding the one that makes sense for the student, which I feel like is, is a big part of being an Alexander teacher in general is the idea of, you know, you give a verbal direction and, it makes the student do exactly the opposite of what you were intending. So, oh, okay, I can't use those words on this person anymore. Um, and kind of finding the, the way that works. For so each you, you have to find a way into what's going to affect their thinking in, exactly. in a useful way. Now, I know that you also work with um, cla- in classes, right? Group mm-hmm. classes. I do. I teach dance classes. And so when you teach a dance class, 
what what's different about your dance class than say a typical if there is such a thing dance class yeah i mean it's hard i don't i i hesitate to say that that there is a, like a typical dance class particularly when you're talking about modern dance which is mostly what i teach where you know there's a different class for every teacher mm-hmm. um but i would say in essence, and I, I was talking about this with my, my dance company, who I teach company class for them, um, that I would say the difference is that approaching it from an Alexander perspective, my keyword for them for class is efficiency, um, which is something you don't normally hear talked about a lot in dance classes. The idea of what is the minimum amount of effort you can use to complete a movement without compromising the way that you're completing that movement. Um, I think a lot of times in dance classes, it's all about more, more, more. Um, and, you know, like a, give it more attack, you know, throw yourself into it more. And I feel like that can be useful in certain situations. But what working with the Alexander technique has sort of made me realize is that if that's all you do, then your baseline is set so high that more subtle nuanced movements are going to be very difficult for you to perform. Um, And that if we can sort of lower your baseline to this is all I need to give it in order for it to happen, then if you want to, you can always throw more at it. You know, it's not saying, okay, you're never allowed to to tense up in my class. It's a very different thing from that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's that idea of you need to be able to find that place where you can do that triple pirouette without tensing everything in your body. And then if you want to go ahead and do it, you know? So for me, that's a big part of Alexander in general is the idea that you're not supposed to never do your habit ever again. The idea is that you're making it into a choice. And so at this point, okay, do I want to go into that habit? Do I want to tense everything up? Or do I want to not do that? And I would think that that approach, um, apart from everything else, would would have a fairly dramatic uh, impact on the likelihood of, of injuring yourself. Yeah, it certainly does. I think a lot of injuries, a lot of dance injuries are caused by... Yeah, there's basically two different kinds of injuries that you can think of. There's there's acute injuries, which is like, okay, I came down from a jump wrong and I broke something. And then there are overuse injuries. And those, I think, are far more common, actually. The, the idea that just you've been working in a way that's not good for you for too long and it's finally caught up with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely with something like an overuse injury... Alexander technique is a great way to go because it says, okay, well, you don't have to work that muscle no matter what you're doing. Um, You can do these movements without getting it involved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it does it. I feel like it has a really good preventative value for for those sorts of dancers who are dancing a lot, especially. Um, Right. You know, I, I don't myself work a lot with dancers. I tend to work much more with musicians and and actors, but I think one thing that the Alexander technique can help anybody with, and I would imagine dancers it would be useful for, is it kind of enables you to recalibrate where zero is in terms mm-hmm. of effort. And, Definitely. And my sense is, or my experience really, is that most people, when they think they're doing nothing, are actually doing quite a bit. 
Yes, And definitely. often they're doing not just quite a bit, but uh, kind of quite a bit of harmful stuff. Yes. And uh, Alexander is really a wonderful way to to get back in touch with actually having a more accurate awareness of how much effort you're you're doing and what kind of effort you're doing. Right, exactly. And I think that's something, again, that particularly for dancers, it's not talked about very much in dance class. You know, I have... I have one combination that I give in my dance class where I start out before we even do it by telling the students, all right, this combination is structured so that if you try to actively control every part of it, you will not have enough time. The music is too fast for that. Mm -hmm. You have to let go. And it gets, you know, it it gets people to the point of, okay, where do I need to let go? Where do I need to hold on? What are the parts of this combination that I do actually need to control? And where are the parts I can let go of? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really, that's a very useful tool for dancers who are so used to just, you know, muscling through everything or powering through everything, is that you don't need to power through absolutely every part of every movement there's usually at least a few places where you can just let go mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it um is there anything else you'd like to add before we come to an end um, not that i can think of i mean the the primary and secondary curves i think are the most important thing and then just you know i i mentioned spirals a little bit i think and the 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 real key for spirals in terms of dance is that a spiral is a combination of half primary and half secondary. And so oh, looking okay. at that, it's basically a sort of a, think about your torso and drawing an X across your torso, right shoulder to left hip and left shoulder to right hip. And the idea is when you're in a spiral, one of those lines is in primary and the other line is in secondary. And Oh, for example, when you walk. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to take that exactly. as an example. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I've been yeah. exploring that a lot myself. Um, and, yeah. you know, that's really helpful to talk to with dancers as well, because I feel like we have a tendency to get stuck with a spiral. We have a tendency to get stuck entirely in one of those curves. And, you know, reminding someone that, you know, this shoulder should be releasing forward or this, this hip should be coming back um, can be really helpful just to kind of balance everything. And um, I know we had an earlier conversation about about uh, developmental movement and the technique mm-hmm. in general. And you mentioned the book that I yes. that it'd be yeah. nice if you could mention it once again here. Sure. This this book was written by two of my dance and Alexander teachers. They're both, um, and it's called Dance and the Alexander Technique: Exploring the Missing Link. Um, and it's by Rebecca Nettlefield and Luke Venier. And it is as close as you can get to taking their class on the Alexander Technique for dancers without actually taking it. It is perfect. It has a ton of images and explanations, and it comes with a DVD that has little, you know, 10 or 30 second clips showing you everything they're talking about. So when I read through it the first time, I ended up reading it with the DVD menu open in front of me because every three paragraphs there's a little symbol that says go to the next thing on the DVD and you'll see what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it also involves, I like this book for dancers especially because the whole second half of it is basically a practice class, a ballet class and a modern class where they give you combinations 
and they talk about it's like taking a class from them they're talking about what you're supposed to be thinking and working with during all of these combinations so it's a great sort of practical exploration for a dancer who's interested okay and that book is available on amazon and i'm mm-hmm. sure you can order it through your local bookstore as well mm-hmm. well uh, my, my my guest today has been ellen stafford Alex, an Alexander Technique teacher in Pittsburgh. She's also has studied extensively the developmental movement work of Raymond Dart. And, of course, she's a dancer and choreographer. And if you live in anywhere near Pittsburgh, uh, and this intrigues you, um, we'll put a link to her website by the interview. I'll also put a link to a site that will give you more general information on the Alexander Technique and will enable you to find an Alexander teacher in your location. Uh, Ellen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me.